ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Australia. It was a film called Australia that was less loved by Australians but was lapped up by international audiences. Mr. Drover. Yeah. There's only one tent. That's right. For the four of us. Well, you know, it gets pretty chilly here at night. We uh, we like to bunk up together, eh, Muggery? Goulash, huh? Nice and close, you know. Oh, come on, Lady Ash. We're just having a laugh. The Baz Luhrmann classic is now having a new life with scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor, restitched together and rebadged as a new series called Faraway Downs. This resurrection is music to the ears to the locals of the North Queensland town of Bowen, where Australia was originally filmed in 2008. I thought, oh, Australia and Nicole and Hugh are dead and buried, but they're going to get a new life. And uh, I'm sure Baz, with his um, expertise and that sort of stuff, I'm sure he'll be able to conjure up a, a decent story out of that. So out of the three-hour movie, we, must have, we probably haven't seen a lot of that was left on the... Uh, the grunt on the floor, so um, yeah, looking forward to seeing the miniseries. It's probably a whole new generation that can come and have a look where the, the movie was made. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. Let's head to central Queensland, where landholders are blaming excessive red tape and unmanaged national parks for recent bushfire devastation. As a fire ravaged through Carnarvon National Park in central Queensland in October, burning more than 160,000 hectares, grazier Sidney Goodwin watched helplessly as around 10,000 hectares, a third of his prime grazing land, went up in flames. Sydney believes the devastation experienced on his property would have been far less extreme if he'd been given permission to backburn. He spoke to our reporter, Abby Holter. Well, I just call it a tsunami of fire. You know, a lot of that country has not had any or very minimal control for... 20, 25 to 30 years even. Um, I, I know some areas that join me have not had a fire in them for nearly 30 years, which, you know, it's just, it just a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, we'd pleaded with National Parks and Wildlife to, to be able to backburn, you know, in the days beforehand um, to Narvala, wouldn't let us do it. So we were sort of, you know, at the liberty or the mercy of the gods, really. What we really were hoping to do was backburn as much as we could just to try and mitigate... Um, just to try and cut, like I say, we've got 55 kilometres of common boundary there. Um, if we'd have been able to narrow that down to, you know, 10, 15, 5, whatever, it would have meant we could have focused on a much smaller area and potentially lost, you know, far less. I spoke to one of the people on the phone two or three times. They didn't allow us to actually backburn the grass um, back into the park, so we couldn't do anything. And, yeah, unfortunately, not only did a lot of that, the habitat that they were trying to save, actually it's just now turned into ash. Like it's just incredible the damage it did do. It is not poorly managed, it is actually just unmanaged. Grazier Sydney Godwin. A Queensland Fire and Emergency Services spokesperson said they worked with Mr Godwin on the decision to not backburn during the fire. A Department of Environment spokesperson said QFES was the lead agency of the Carnarvon fire and their staff did engage with landholders. And a Queensland Parks and Wildlife Services spokesperson said there's been 28 planned burns in Carnarvon National Park in the past five years. 
Heading north towards Nebo in tropical North Queensland, David and Raylene Wright saw around a quarter of their property turn to ash in the fires of November 2018. David expected the aftermath of the blaze would prompt fire breaks to be more easily approved so he could be more prepared for the next fire season. He says he was wrong. We've got about 85,000 acres here and uh, in six days the fire consumed a bit over 20,000 acres. We lost a lot of wildlife, a lot of koalas were burnt. Uh, it was uh, pretty traumatic at the time. Immediately after that 2018 fire, I got all excited and was wanting to build a fire break right around it. I, I've got a fire break on three sides of it, but one side of it is uh, mountainous. I put in my application to the Parks and Wildlife uh, crew who manage the state forests. It's a pretty long, drawn-out process, I can tell you. I eventually got the uh, the approval, but then uh, it was conditional upon me getting a cultural survey done. I just uh, ran out of steam. I just don't have the energy. Consequently, I, uh, I haven't done it. It's so difficult to do practical things on the ground that are not going to do any damage to the environment. In fact, it's going to protect the environment. The DES spokesperson said cultural surveys are a legal requirement under the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2003. They said they provided Mr Wright with the details for the appropriate cultural heritage body. Rural Fire Service Queensland Superintendent James Haig says a large number of permits are issued for planned burns each year and the application process is simple. We do try and find uh, try and find solutions wherever we can. Um, Obviously, from our perspective, um, conducting hazard reduction burning or, or planned burning is very important. At the end of the day, what Queensland Fire and Emergency Services and what Rural Fire Service is about is protecting the impact, is trying to protect the community from impacts. And that includes, of course, all of our rural landowners as well. General Manager of the Queensland Rural Fire Brigade, Justin Chaveau, says the government lacked communication with landholders. It was established in that 2018-19 fire season that the government, when it comes to maintaining their risk, is... In, in, not, in, in a number of instances, they're not a good neighbour. The government is like any other landholder in the state of Queensland. You're responsible for your fuel load. The other thing the government can do is to talk to their neighbours and work collaboratively with them to try and reduce the fuel load on the government land and also the neighbours' one. So, so being a good neighbour policy. Now, that's just not happening. The DES spokesperson said they have a good neighbour policy where they let neighbouring landholders know about planned burns and bushfires. They said QPWS work all year round to establish and maintain positive relationships with neighbouring landholders to prepare for and respond to bushfire season. But Mr Chavot says it's too little, too late. That report from Abby Holter with additional reporting from Megan Hughes. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Oh, we're disappointed to say that, yes, somebody did catch a shark on the jetty and then remove the head and put it back into the water. Yeah, there are fishers that do go trophy hunting and um, they take the shark's teeth out. They use special rigs, line and bait. Um, it's just really disappointing that um, they would do that when they know that, you know, we share the area with divers and snorkelers. 
That's the CEO of the Bustleton Jetty, Lisa Shreve, and she's responding to the discovery by a diver of a 1.8 metre tiger shark that was found decapitated at the end of Bustleton's popular tourist jetty. Now, that's raised concerns, safety concerns, and prompted calls to expand a recent shark fishing ban from the Perth metro area all the way down to the holiday region of the southwest. Our reporter in Bunbury, Alexander Govan, has been covering this story. Now, Alexander, who was was it that discovered this decapitated shark carcass? There was a group of swimmers um, and snorkelers over the weekend just passing by and they noticed it in the water on Sunday. A local diver called Aaron Goodhue uh, went out there and uh, he actually found it in the water. It was only eight metres away from the entrance platform where a lot of kids swim and snorkel. So he went down there and he picked it up and he placed it in front of one of the underwater sculptures just to take a photo and show people how close it was to where people swim. He then took it out of the water and he's wrapped it in an old curtain and he's taken it home, uh, away from the water, away from all the people swimming. And he's actually still got it at home. He sent me a photo of it this morning and he's going to have to dispose of it, probably have to bury it because of how big it is. And he has kept it because he asked if the Department of Fisheries wanted it, um, but they haven't really responded yet. Well, let's have a listen to local diver. This is Aaron Goodhue. I picked it up, moved it over to the nearest sculpture, which was the diver's helmet, and then put it in front of that to take a photo of it as evidence of the location. So if it's just blue water and sand, it doesn't prove anything. There's no way in the middle of the day, this was yesterday at lunchtime, there's no way I walked out to the end of that jetty with a carcass that I'd found elsewhere. It was from that location, you know. Um, And then I put it in front of the sculpture, took a photo of it just as as proof of the location, and then I removed it from the water and I took it back to the beach, took it away from where all the kids were, um, and then... And then I just basically wrapped it up in a in a curtain, an old curtain, and just got it off the beach and took it away. That's um, Bustleton local diver Aaron Goodhue, and he was speaking to our reporter Alexander Govan. Now, Alexander, has this happened before? Yeah. So coincidentally, actually, last year in February, Aaron um, found another decapitated decapitated shark. Sorry, in a similar incident at the jetty, and uh, went and removed that one too. He also told me that he's seen multiple bits of evidence around the Cape where people are participating in this. You were speaking to Aaron Goodhue and he told you about previous times that he, that he came across sharks. Let's have a listen to that. found one almost exactly the same location in February this year as well. Um, often find parts of the tails, fins, parts of the head sometimes. It's a, it's a, it's a common thing, um, more commonly in this time of year. And what's concerning is... With the warmer weather, I've already kind of said it, but we see so many kids. I've got a young daughter, and they're, they're jumping in the water. They're doing bombies, not knowing that only hours before, people were throwing uh, animal parts into the water in Burley and bringing these sharks in, and then not only catching the shark, but then they're not even... They're actually... It's not like they're catching it and releasing it. They're decapitating it and then putting the body part back in the water right in that spot where those kids are. This is the second time Aaron Goodhue has come across a mutilated shark. What sort of response is he looking for? So he's calling for uh, an extension of this ban uh, and just to stop people from recklessly disposing their shark bait. So he wants that ban from South Mandra to continue all the way down to include uh, Bustleton Jetty 
and further along the Cape as well. Now, finally, Alex, has the WA state government responded to this at all? They've said that in the future, regional locations in terms of the fishing ban will be considered on a case-by-case basis. So that came from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. They've also encouraged fishermen to carefully release all unwanted fish immediately to the water unharmed, um, and they should be, all the retained fish should be dispatched humanely and kept fresh. Also, while it's not illegal, releasing a shark with its head removed is just not responsible fishing behaviour. Alexander Govan in Bonbury, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. All right, thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. Now, if stories from all over regional and rural Australia is your thing, why not download the Australia Wide podcast? You can find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your favourites. That way, you can hear the stories and issues affecting people outside the city and it'll be at your fingertips whenever you want to. We'll take you to the place where it's happening and to the people it is happening to. And we'll have some fun along the way. That's the Australia Wide podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your favourites. As Australia's agricultural industry continues to grapple with a skilled worker shortage, training programmes aimed at high school students are getting more young people into the industry. Madeleine McCusker has put this story together for us. It's a hot and dusty day in outback Queensland and high school student Georgia Ward is swapping the classroom for cattle yards. For one, you don't have to be at a desk all day. You can be outside doing, especially if you enjoy doing outdoor stuff like me. Um, So that's the best part, I reckon. It's a different experience and it's good for people who want to get into the industry, especially if they don't come from a farming family like I do. She's part of a small cohort of Year 10, 11 and 12 students from the Longreach State High School taking part in a Certified Rural Operations class, a nationally accredited high school-based training program built to provide vocational pathways for students. Once a week, they travel to nearby properties to learn the ropes of the agricultural industry from graziers, agents and industry professionals. Teachers Courtney Horan and Tom Higgins started offering the program after noticing the lack of pathways for young people into agriculture. Yeah, the kids love it, especially days like today when we're mustering, we're in the yards, they're hands-on, they're getting dirty. They don't love the theory as much as the practical, but we love the theory because we know ultimately education is key to the ag industry succeeding for the future and this generation coming through. And they're not just going with that eagerness and keenness to work and that physical work side to it, but they're going in with the foundational knowledge of the entire industry. Australia's agriculture industry is worth around $80 billion in 2023. But a skilled worker shortage in recent years has left the industry understaffed. Courtney says training and education are an obvious solution to ensuring the future of one of the country's biggest industries. Like I said, kids are getting exposure to all sorts of enterprises. Some graziers are focusing on genetics of their herds, others are fattening livestock, others are improving their pastures. So they're seeing that there's not one way to run a property or be within the ag industry. They've been visiting the local butcher, they've had livestock agents come and talk to them. So they're getting the whole picture of the industry for Australia. Hands-on learning is great for any student that would like to be more hands-on with their learning styles, but also the fact that our program is concentrating not just on 
kids going out to a paddock mustering the cattle into the yards and putting them on the truck, but they're getting exposure, the knowledge and skills to what the biosecurity requirements are, who the government bodies are involved in the industry, what their workplace health and safety responsibilities and rights are, and things to do with sustainability with the industry and what the future looks like for agriculture in Australia. Fellow teacher Tom Higgins says getting the kids out of the classroom was a big factor in the program's success. It's phenomenal to give kids that uh, chance to work practically rather than just be locked up in a classroom. I can't emphasise enough how great the practical element of all of this has been to give this chance to kids who are not necessarily, you know, reading and writing learners. They're more that kinesthetic learner, the chance to actually get out and build and work on these skills. Longreach Grazier Ann Webber works as a teacher aide on the course and often has the students visit her property to help out with cattle work. Today, they're mustering and processing cattle for live export. It gives kids an insight into what really happens. Kids need to see that there are, you know, like it's, there are endless opportunities and wide open spaces and, and a million jobs that you could fill in. Anne has worked on the land her whole life and knows firsthand the importance of attracting and retaining staff. She says the industry could be doing more to create opportunities for young people. I think it's important. I mean, I know what it's like because I've done that. And with the colleges closing down, I think that's where a lot of the kids, they got their foot in the door because they, they got some experience. And with those colleges closed down, I think, well, then it's up to us. If we want the people in our industry, then we have to give back. Lead Ag is another rural program that takes students between the age of 15 and 17 across central and western Queensland in order to gain practical experience on farm and within the industry. I'm Meg Bassingthwaite and I'm the Agriculture Workforce Officer for Chirrup, which is based in Emerald, and I work in Longreach. So my role is based around attracting, training, retaining workforce in the agricultural industry. This year, Meg says there was a large increase in interest for the program, which started in 2022. It was amazingly oversubscribed. So in um, 2023, there are 135 applicants and we were only able to give 12 positions. She says it's a good opportunity for students to get a holistic view of the different careers in agriculture coming out and seeing the sheer scale of some of the places we've visited and understanding all of the different facets that are there um, has been really eye-opening to a lot of them. And, and they might have thought they wanted to work with cattle or those or some kind of livestock and they've actually realised that they're super interested in ag tech um, or something like that. So it's been interesting to see how having that exposure has really helped those kids form their ideas with all that information available. I think giving people who may or may not have an understanding of the ag industry access to networks in different areas of the ag industry really sets them up or enables them to be more likely to enter the industry, which obviously both supports the workforce and also the employers. Meg Basingweight, ending that story from Madeleine McCosker. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia Wide. Like, say, the swimming carnival, I can tell them about how, like, the races are. And as well, um, there's a big carnival, like, where we show our house colours. You've never done that before? Um, no, not really, no. 
Baz Luhrmann's 2008 movie Australia catapulted the North Queensland town of Bowen onto the international stage. The film has now been reimagined as a mini-series called Faraway Downs, returning Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman and what they're calling Bowenwood to the screen and giving locals a chance to reflect on when Hollywood came to town. Lily Nothling reports from Bowen. It's been 16 years since Hollywood came to the tropics. Welcome to Australia. Mel Jockheim remembers her chance encounter with director Baz Luhrmann outside her Bowen pie shop like it was yesterday. He was just sitting on the footpath behind me having a cup of coffee and he had a little camera and he was taking a photo down the road and I thought there's nothing down there to look at. So I sat with him thinking he was a tourist and telling him he can go up on the hill and where he could go fishing and all that and he didn't let on and uh, we talked for nearly an hour and then next day or two days after that the Southern Papers had Pie Lady Seals movie deal. He was just looking for a, a place for his movie Australia. Didn't have a clue until I read it in the paper. The seaside community clearly fit the bill and soon the cast and crew moved in to make movie magic. The big budget production transformed Bowen's sleepy waterfront into 1940s Darwin. Set designers built a two-storey pub, police station, theatre, Chinatown and even a brothel with Sunday's councillor Mike Brunker, was mayor at the time. To walk around the little village they had built, um, to covering the roads with red dirt and, and coming down of a Sunday afternoon and watching a hundred head of longhorn cows uh, being trained how to run around the town down your main street, it's just, it was unbelievable. Locals were cast as cowboys, soldiers, drivers, policemen and drunks. The film's big stars, including Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman, attracted the eyes of the world, and paparazzi swarmed to the area. The town, previously best known for the Big Mango, embraced the moniker Bowen Wood, even replicating the famous Hollywood sign on the side of a local water tower. We milked it for everything we could. <laughs> it was, um, we had 23,000 visitors sign the visitors' book. And a lot of times I'd bring people down, you know, it was just too busy to sign, so people would come and have a look and then leave again. It was on the lips of every radio station, every, every TV station. It was, uh, yeah, absolutely amazing. Ben DeLuca got closer to the action than most. As the long-time owner of Bowen's Summer Garden Cinemas, he was responsible for showing the rushes to the cast and crew on the big screen. The film that they take today with the cameras... It's rushed off to Sydney that night to the processors. They process it that night and fly it back the next morning early and then they give it to me at four o'clock in the morning and I put it on the projector and they all gather around to see what they did the previous day. It was exciting for me. You know, they'd say, oh, how did you get up at four o'clock every day and, and go put them on and what have you. Was, well, it was great fun, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed it for the world. While Australia was a hit among North Queenslanders, the 165-minute epic received mixed reviews. It's now been reimagined as a six-part TV series called Far Away Downs, 
including footage that didn't make the original cut. This place is so barren, I can't understand what you would have seen out here. There she is, far away down. Councillor Brunker hopes the new show will help the story reach a new audience. I thought old Australia and Nicole and Hugh were dead and buried, but they're going to get a new life. And uh, I'm sure Baz, with his um, expertise and that sort of stuff, I'm sure he'll be able to conjure up a, a decent story out of that. So out of the three-hour movie, we, must have, we probably haven't seen a lot of that was left on the, uh, the grunt on the floor. So, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing the miniseries. It's probably a whole new generation that can come and have a look where the, the movie was made. Merle Jockheim still treasures her time with the stars, who often visited her pie shop. They were just so warm, they became just like family. Hugh Jackman was the best with his family because he was, used to just park at the back of the shop, sit under our clothesline at the back, have a coffee with Deb, and the kids played in the backyard, and we found them all were like that. They were just normal family people. Lily Nussling reporting there from Bowen in Queensland about the resurrection of the film Australia, restitched together as a miniseries called Far Away Downs. And that is Australia wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.